Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Rex Factor! This week, Caroline Orban's back! With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello! Hello! And welcome to Rex Factor, reviewing all the Queen and Prince consorts of England, from Elswith to Prince Philip. Follow us on Twitter, X, and Instagram, where we are at Rex Factor Pod. Email rexfactorpodcast.hotmail.com and sign up for bonus content at patreon.com forward slash Rex Factor. And this week, we are reviewing the first Hanoverian consort proper in the form of Caroline of Ansbach, wife and queen consort to George II. Now, that's not the Caroline married to the Prince Regent. Uh, that's Caroline of Brunswick. That's a couple of episodes away. So perhaps not one of the more famous of the consorts, but as we'll see, by no means one of the least substantial. Biography! Caroline was born on the 1st of March 1683 in Ansbach, the daughter of John Frederick, the Margrave of Brandenburg-Ansbach, and Princess Eleanor Erdmuth of Saxe-Eisenach. Good. Do they feature much? Her parents? Yeah. Uh, well, I guess you'll find out in the next few minutes. Okay. 1683 that's always much easier when they're born then because i can just completely relate where they are in in time much that, easier with this the, is my life year of birth yeah exactly so ansbach is in modern day bavaria so sort of north of uh, north north of munich west oh, yeah. of nuremberg closer to nuremberg um, and it's one of the smaller of the uh, sort of roughly 300 independent states that make up the confusing mass that is the holy roman empire Stereotypical mountain villages type thing. I yeah. always think of when someone says Bavaria because yeah. um, of Oktoberfest. I think. So I'm saying it's small. It's it's smaller than an English county, Ansbach. So really oh, right. tiny. So it's still its own little state, but it it really is a little one. Yeah. What is what on earth is going on there then? <laughs> Why on earth would they want? Because if you're talking about the King of England, right and. Okay, here's a, bit, here's a bit of an arrogant, pompous thing. But I, I imagine they would be thinking along the lines of, I need to be marrying someone of a nation-state for alliances. not Because that's basically a commoner, isn't it? Imagine, imagine <laughs> such a thing. In well, terms I mean, of power. Again, weirdly, yes. In terms of state and size, yes. But she is, in terms of status, uh, she's more than that. But it's not, it's not one of the bigger, I mean, physically and... Politically and all that. Yeah, it's not one of the bigger ones. Um, and yeah, it's true, you know, her early years don't suggest... Well, her status, Ansbach, doesn't scream out future English queen, and indeed her early years uh, don't scream out great prospects. She wants to know 
how much her parents will feature. Her father dies when she's just three, so that's the end of him in this episode. Good, because I can't remember his name. The family comes under the protection of the Elector of Brandenburg, um, who later in this period will become the first King of Prussia, Frederick I. Um, anyway, so the family come under his protection, and he requires that Eleanor, um, Caroline's mother, marry the young Elector of Saxony to secure him an alliance. Mm-hmm. So he thinks, right, well, if you're here, I'm going to make use of you. Unfortunately, it's not a happy marriage. The rumours that uh, the Elector is planning to murder Eleanor so that he can marry his mistress. Mm. That's no good, isn't it? Thankfully, instead, he dies in 1694, smallpox. <laughs> Uh, but then tragically Eleanor herself dies just two years later in 1696 aged only 34 so Caroline is left an orphan at the age of just 13 right what's going to become of her well exactly and say she's you know she's from little old Anne's back both her parents are dead Mm. it's not great prospects except for the fact that once more she returns to Berlin where perhaps remorseful at how things had turned out with that marriage alliance Frederick takes her in once more and is now a full time guardian rather than just helping out her mother so she is now in berlin prussia as it will be and particularly frederick's wife sophia charlotte who is the sister of the future george the first how to to turn with that bit again she's her sister so frederick uh, and his wife sophia charlotte and sophia charlotte is the sister of the future george the first they take in Caroline, and Sophia Charlotte particularly takes Caroline under her wing, and they grow very uh, close to each other. Um, Caroline starts to sort of resemble her in her sort of uh, the way that she speaks and mannerisms. Sophia tells Caroline Berlin was a desert when she went back to visit Ansbach to see her family. Uh, and Caroline excels at one of the most enlightened and liberal courts in Europe, so it sort of dismisses paltry, as she put it, traditional feminine disputes in favour of uh, in favour of Sophia's salon. So you've got scholars and intellects from all across Europe coming to debate and question the big topics and the big matters of the day. Uh, And Caroline becomes an acolyte of one of the most notable of these, the in-house philosopher uh, and uh, mathematician Gottfried Leibniz. Oh, yeah. Biscuits. (laughs) Yes, I assume assume that was one of his many... (laughs) I know his work. So things have turned up for Caroline at this point, but sadly tragedy strikes again in 1705 with the death of uh, Sophia Charlotte, again only 36 years old. Gosh. Of what? Uh, Oh, I can't remember what she dies of. It's going to be smallpox, isn't it? Smallpox, consumption, cancer. Yeah, TB, yeah. Caroline was left overwhelmed by grief and sickness. Uh, she's 22 years old now, so Frederick uh, decides, getting back to his old tricks, she's old enough now, time to put her to work, so he wants to form another alliance. Mm-hmm. So that's why, although she might not seem like she's got that great prospects initially in Ansbach, because she's under the guardianship of Frederick, that makes her a bigger cat than she might otherwise have been. She's close to power rather than being unpowerful. Exactly. Uh, And with his help, she secures a betrothal from the Archduke Charles of Austria, who is the future Holy Roman Emperor. Mm -hmm. So essentially the most eligible bachelor on the market. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. What? (laughs) Oh, okay. Well done. Gosh, quite the rise. So there's a point there in that journey, though, when she was thinking, I'm going to be at farmer's balls for the rest of my life. (laughs) But Caroline rejects the future Holy Roman Emperor. She says no. 
because she was unwilling to uh, convert to Catholicism, as he required. Oh, that whole thing. Yeah, that's still there, isn't it? Uh, Frederick, understandably, is infuriated, but of course it impresses many Protestants across Europe. Right. And particularly impressed is um, Sophia Charlotte's mother, the Electress Sophia of Hanover. So this is obviously mother of George I, mother of Sophia Charlotte. Yeah. Uh, she'd been keeping an eye on Caroline since meeting her in Berlin in 1704 and had thought that she would make the ideal wife for her grandson, which is the future George II. Yeah, 2004, right in the middle of university. And although she doesn't think it likely, she puts the idea forward uh, in Hanover. So after Caroline rejects the Archduke, uh, George I, as he will be, I'm saying George I before he's king just because otherwise it's going to be confusing with the Georges. Uh, he tells his son that he should go and meet her in person so her inclinations should be assured and he would know if she was the right woman. Right, nice. It is unusually nice for George I, and particularly in context of being nice to his son, but perhaps that is, (laughs) if you listen to our last episode, his own personal experience of uh, being matched with a woman that he did not pair Uh, well with. Yes. So he's like, meet her, meet her first. Definitely meet her first, yeah. I've still got um, your mum locked in a tower, so (laughs) (laughs) don't do that. So, the future George II goes to Ansbach and visits uh, Caroline in disguise. So he presents himself as a Hanoverian nobleman, Monsieur de Bouche. I mean, I suppose you have to, because there's no other evidence. You can't even sort of they don't have like a a public personality that you can have a, a, a make a judgment on beforehand <laughs> so you have to sort of so kind of stalking them on social media or something i suppose to a certain extent also that's a way that in terms of people keeping a log of who's coming to visit her that maybe they can keep it on the quiet because prussia might not be the very paps. happy about it yeah um given that she's quite a sharp cookie whether someone as uh smart as caroline would have been taken in by this ruse uh, you know, we don't know. But either way, she she plays along and George is immediately besotted. Mm. He thinks, yep, definitely the one for me. Hanover quickly gets going with the negotiations before Frederick gets wind of it. And indeed, they are married. Okay. And happily, unlike last time, Caroline and George get on very well together. They're the I going to say, like, mm. what she, when, how does she feel? She At some point, he takes his... Um, like hat off and says, aha, tis I. And she's uh, all right? And she's all right, and they get on very well together. Though I say they're a bit of an odd pairing in some ways. So Lucy Worsley's described George as being considerably shorter than average with bulging china blue eyes and a prominent Roman nose. Uh, whereas mm. in contrast, Caroline is tall, stately, celebrated as a handsome young woman, uh, flowing blonde hair, and a bosom of exemplary magnitude. okay in personality as well they're very different caroline as we've seen revels in intellectual debate she's got a love of the arts enjoys witty conversation george in contrast likes hunting military affairs and pageantry and openly loathes all forms of cultural expression Uh. horace walpole observed that he would rather find a guinea in his pocket than have a work of literature dedicated to him But somehow it seems to work. Caroline devotes herself to pleasing George and she maintains a strong hold over him, both emotional and physical, uh, that she never really loses, even even with age. 
Really? Uh, in 1707, their first child, a son and heir, Frederick, is born. So that secures the dynasty for another generation. Does it? I don't remember King Frederick. Well, <laughs> oh, actually, well, you won't find out in this episode, to be fair. Uh, so he's the father of George III. So that's one of those, bit like the Black Prince, where he predeceases his father. Okay. So this succession skips a generation. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Course. Soon after this, Caroline contracted smallpox, um, and George nurses her through her sickness. Personally yeah. nurses her, and at risk to himself, indeed, he also caught smallpox uh, as a result of that, though apparently wasn't particularly poorly with it. How far are we, are we away are we from... Um, now, hang on. This is key stage two science <laughs> here. Jennings? He's injected cows with a load of... Um, Small box, and then put that blood into people or something. I mean, it sounds like... You say it like that, it sounds like a pretty bad idea. It sounds mad. Um, that's soon, though, isn't it? When are we around... Oh, no, maybe that's Victorian times. Yeah, forget me. Well, hold on to that thought. Okay. Um, he spends as much time with her as possible, which is apparently behaviour that some criticised as being unprincely. <laughs> yeah. And Hor- uh, Horace Walpole later wrote, It is certain that the king always preferred the queen's person to any other woman, nor ever described his idea of beauty, but that he drew a picture of his wife. Ah, oh, that's a nice description. Mm. I don't believe that, but that, <laughs> that is um, nice, at least, that um, there's that conception of it. Mm. So, ambitious and politically savvy, Caroline quickly begins preparing herself and George for what will ultimately be their future roles as king and queen of Britain. So they learn English. Mm -hmm. Uh, Leibniz reported that uh, she had a decided turn for that language. Uh, And she very much sees herself as a queen-in-waiting, so she's determined to capture hearts and minds of a future subject. So a daughter is born in 1709, so they call it Anne, after the current queen. Mm -hmm. English men and women are appointed to her household, um, and a British envoy noted that she always behaved with a special courtesy to British visitors. She even starts drinking tea. Oh, brilliant. Well, I mean, that's going to work, isn't it? If you That even now would be a good icebreaker, actually. Yeah. To, to, uh, to just accept a cup of tea like it's... Because that is true. That's how you spot them, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Caroline admires and associates herself with Elizabeth I. Oh. Um, uh, yeah, we're still in her her century. Still in the absolute, we're born in her century. Um, and of course, all, you know, the Protestant element as well with rejecting the Holy Roman Empire, that all plays into this sense of her as the Protestant champion in waiting. Uh, she's also mm. close, though, to her last well, grandmother-in-law, the Electress Sophia. So oh, yeah, that's right. first mother, um, who was the heir to Anne for a long time, but she misses out on becoming queen herself by just a few months. Uh, so she actually dies in Caroline's arms in the beloved gardens at Hohenhausen. Well, she was going to be queen. It was she all was going to be queen because she's queen. George's mother. She's on with the claim to the throne. So it would have been Sophia to be queen of Britain. So Sophia narrowly misses out because it's just really barely even a couple of months later that Queen Anne dies uh, in 1714. So at that point, Caroline's father-in-law becomes actually becomes King George I and the Hanoverian era has now begun. Got you. Uh, and Caroline is a pretty popular figure in these early days of the new dynasty. Ironically, this sort of new German princess kind of marks a return to normality. She'll be the first queen consort since the Glorious Revolution in 1688. 
She's the first Princess of Wales since Catherine of Aragon. Gosh, why is that? Because uh, the Princess of Wales will be the wife of the Prince of Wales. But but isn't the Prince of Wales just automatically the heir? Yeah, but we haven't had a Prince of Wales with a wife since. Uh, oh, yeah. Hmm. Blimey. Yeah. Rex, I mean, these are coming thick and fast this week. Yeah. And unlike the Stuart Queens, who'd had all these sort of problems with infertility, Caroline comes along already... Dynasty with lots of children. We've got the son. We've got several daughters. We've got the stability, which really hasn't been present since the Civil War. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it is the start of a, a dynasty that is a biggie. Less traditional is the fact that with George the First wife being locked up in a German castle, Caroline is actually already the most senior woman in the country. That's so awkward, isn't it? Where is is your mother-in-law joining us today? <laughs> no, no, no. She's um. Well, don't worry. <laughs> um, Caroline also very much deliberately courts popularity, so she exploited the cachet gained by having rejected the emperor in her youth on religious grounds, and she's a very effective political mm. operator. She's got a natural charm. She's got that ability to ask just the right question or remember just the right sort of little personal detail about mm. whoever she's talking to. And as George I's unpopularity grows due to his very obvious disdain for all things English, Caroline <laughs> and... Prince George, future George II, established a rival and much more populous court um, at Hampton Court initially. So they speak the language, they're regularly seen in public, they're altogether preferable to the king. Yeah, I can see why that would be. Mm. Yeah. But of course that doesn't go down very well with King George I. No. Uh, he's already on pretty bad terms with his son and he now starts to view Caroline with a certain amount of suspicion as well. Right. And things come to a head in 1717 when George insisted that they make the Duke of Newcastle, whom he knew that his son hated, godfather uh, to their newborn son. Right. So immediately... Does he, is that, does he have sort of hiring and firing power like that? Yeah. Like he can say, yeah. yeah, who's the godfather? Yeah. Right. So immediately after the baptism, Prince George marches up to the Duke and try to say, you are a rascal, but I shall find you. Meaning, I'll, you know, get my revenge on you. Uh, but mm. in his broken English accent, it instead sounded like, I shall fight you. And the Duke thought he was being challenged to a duel. Right. By the future king? Yes. What do you say to that? Well, he tells the current king. And it's a pretty simple misunderstanding to resolve. But um, Prince George refuses to apologise. King George refuses to forgive. And the next day, Caroline and George are placed under house arrest with armed guards at their door. Whoa. Now, this is soon lifted, but Prince George is then expelled from court, and King George I is going to keep possession of their children. Now, Caroline is given leave to stay, but she surprises George I by instead backing her husband. Yeah. So she goes with him, but is devastated, of course, at the separation from uh, her children. Faints, apparently, mm. when she had to say goodbye to the daughters. Oh, God, he has got... I can't believe his willingness to capture his own family members. <laughs> <laughs> it's very odd behaviour. Mm. I mean, it's it's, it's really odd behaviour, isn't it? It's it psychopathic. Is. <laughs> I'm just. If you notice a bit of a pattern here, George, yeah. have you seen her? So, someone's got to be saying that. Now, in her absence, the baby son falls ill. Doctors <sighs> beg George to send for Caroline. Initially, he stubbornly refuses until it's pointed out to him quite how bad it's going to look if the child dies under his watch. 
So he does finally relent, but tragically too late, and the baby dies before Caroline can get there. This George the First guy is an absolute rotter. Now he really is the lowest of the low. <laughs> not not exactly in his defence, but is worth pointing out. A post mortem revealed the child the child had a polyp on his heart, so I think realistically couldn't have been saved. It's not he didn't die due to absence from the mother, but nevertheless, just no, the human but, cost of not being there. Yeah, um, it's a terrible blow for Caroline, and of course, greatly increases public sympathy for her and against George. Yeah, God, get rid of him. Well, things have obviously gone far enough here. So in 1720, the increasingly influential MP Robert Walpole manages to uh, effect a reconciliation. So the king agrees to allow Caroline to visit her daughters every week, though she's cross that they hadn't been returned to her permanently. So this is a public, very public... Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like Harry and Charles. Oh, yeah, like George issues uh, messages across Europe telling the rulers not to admit his son... (laughs) In any way, he's got re- I he's got real problems, hasn't he? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, he's capturing people, trying to trying to sort of cancel them. Mm. He shouldn't have the amount of power he does. This man, no one is particularly grief-stricken when he dies in seventeen twenty-seven. How long did he last as king? Uh, thirteen years. It's about thirteen years. It's quite long enough, isn't it? Mm. Uh, George II, on becoming king, declares that he would rule as a British king, while Caroline said that she would as soon live on a dunghill as return to Hanover. Oh, right. So again, they were absolutely just waving those British flags, saying, this is different. This is different because everything else is rubbish. (laughs) Yeah, different to George (laughs) I, who hated Britain, is more the the contrast. Oh, Uh, They share a magnificent coronation. Caroline's dress is covered in so many jewels that a pulley was required to lift the skirt so she could kneel down. (laughs) It's it's not a skirt, then, is it? You're wearing a piece of machinery. You're wearing a pulley. You're wearing a a bejeweled pulley. (laughs) Uh, The ceremony's most famous for the first performance of Handel's celebrated Zadok the Priest. Oh, brilliant. That's absolute... Belter, yeah, um, and as a sort of throwing off the shackles mm. moment to hear that. But he does. Uh, he composes a few anthems for this ceremony. So he also composes the anthem "My Heart Is Indicting," which was a tribute to Caroline, who, unlike her philistine husband, uh, becomes a great patron of the arts in Britain. Knows Handel quite well. Nice, good. Cultural patient, but her political influence is arguably just as strong and more significant as well. Despite her disappointment at how the reconciliation with George I had been managed in 1720, she remains close to Robert Walpole, who now has effectively become Britain's first Prime Minister, though they're not Mm. using that title yet. Uh, And she played an important role in persuading George II to keep him in office after his accession. Oh, right. Mm. Oh, because he can choose, can't he? Technically still. Yeah. Uh, And George clearly has great faith in Caroline's ability, so he appoints her as regent on four separate occasions when he returns to visit Hanover. Because, yeah, she's very publicly not going. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) She's not welcome there anymore. Shall I come with you, dear? Ah, That dunghill thing. Yeah. They haven't really forgotten that. Mm. It's true, though. Caroline does never leave Britain again. Once she's come over, that's it. I mean, did she actually hate it? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming this is cynical PR, but... Oh, yeah, it's cynical, very much cynical PR. Hmm. 
But I mean, she really didn't go back, so... Yeah, but she really Maybe. doesn't go back. Well, I mean, it works well for her. Jaws goes back and she just gets to be in charge. Mm. Gets some real power. Break from him. Mm. Yeah, indeed. And he's not an easy man to be married to. Even though he does genuinely love her and desire her, he openly takes mistresses. Initially, almost more because it was the done thing rather than any particular enthusiasm. Oh, lo- my love, I have to go a-romping. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we go no more a romping? <laughs> uh, for several decades, his chief mistress was Henrietta Howard, who was one of Caroline's ladies. Apparently, he used to visit her apartment at seven o'clock on the dot, like clockwork, to the extent that if he arrived early, he'd be found pacing up and down the corridor looking at his watch. German efficiency. <laughs> Uh, and he keeps no secrets on Caroline, so Lord Harvey quipped that had the Queen been a painter, she might have drawn her rival's picture at 600 miles distance. <laughs> so, not particularly good for Caroline, um, but she knows at least that by acquiescing in these liaisons with women, with women in her service, she can keep a close eye on things, and she mm. remains the most valued woman in his life. So she keeps that hold over him and that power that comes with that mm. influence. Yeah. Uh, So indeed, when George finally gets tired of Henrietta in 1734, Caroline tried to stop her leaving court for a while, to which George complained, Why will you not let me part with an old deaf woman of whom I'm weary? (laughs) They're so unlikable, aren't they? (laughs) But the reason is made clear in 1735, when on a visit to Hanover, George falls in love with the young woman, Amelie von Wolmoden and he proved extremely reluctant to return to Britain and was in a thoroughly bad mood with everyone, not least Caroline herself, whom he publicly insults and humiliates when he does come back. Uh, And Caroline's patience does actually start wearing out, so the breach is serious enough that Walpole had to urge her to swallow her pride and write a soothing, complying, softening, bending and submitting letter to George, even expressing the hope that he will bring Amelie to Britain. Well, I mean, she'd been used to it before, hadn't she? Exactly, it's good politics, she doesn't like it, but she agrees, it's good politics, she does it, and it works. George writes uh, a very amorous and devoted letter back, and decides on reflection to leave Amelie in Hanover. Ah, yes, this Walpole fellow knows um, knows the actors and this. Mm. Uh, So the near rift with George is ultimately pretty easily resolved. The same cannot be said, however, for a rift with her eldest son, Frederick. Ah, yeah, the old Hanoverian father-son trick. Exactly. Uh, As ever, George I is partly to blame. Yeah. So when he comes to the throne in 1714 and everyone comes with him to Britain, he insists that despite being only seven years old, Frederick must remain in Hanover and represent the family. Mm. Yeah. Uh, So uh, the separation is deeply painful for Caroline. She closely questions anyone recently returning from Hanover about how Frederick's getting on, begs her contacts in Europe for updates. And yet, Somehow, over time, they sort of seem to forget about him. And the only person who does see him is initially George I, because he goes back to Hanover every now and again. And he seems to set him up as a bit of a rival to George II, gives him lots of titles and this sort of thing. So it seems like Mm. the parents start to associate him with uh, the hated Uh, George George, and uh, become a bit suspicious of him. So they even decide that when they do get a son that survives, that's born in Britain, that maybe they can split the succession. So we'll have... Hanover going to Frederick and Britain will go to their second son. I sort of... It's such a painful story because you can see it hmm. um, happening. It They are really unlikable. <laughs> uh, 
so thus, when they come to the throne in 1727, it's a full year until Frederick, and on parliamentary insistence, is invited to come to Britain himself. And they're insisting that the um, the empire, the country, isn't split. Well, oh, yes, no, it's, it's, it's not happened. Not also. theirs. That hasn't happened. Well, it is now in 1727, but they haven't managed to affect that. But it feels like they're a bit grumpy about it because that's what they'd rather be doing. Uh, and unfortunately, with but, no particular cause, indifference gradually turns to active dislike. So his sort of normal flaws, mistresses, debts, practical jokes get blown out of all proportion. His demand for an equal mm. financial settlement to that his father had had a Prince of Wales is rejected. And inevitably, he ultimately does become a hostile figure and associates himself with opposition politicians. Mm. So yeah. exactly as it was with George I, monarch and heir, very publicly at odds. Oh, we're just destined to repeat ourselves, aren't we? And again, we have tensions blowing up over uh, the birth of a baby. Such is the mutual suspicion that when Frederick and his wife had their first child in 1737, Caroline genuinely believed he was making it up, uh, while Frederick is determined that Caroline won't be present at the birth. So when she goes into labour at about 10 o'clock at night at Hampton Court, he bundles her into a carriage and drives 16 miles across town to St James's Palace. It's so, it's so depressing. Caroline furiously races then to be present and is worried that he'll put in a, a changeling uh, and a big oh. strapping boy, but she was relieved to find a little rat of a girl that she decided probably was his. She's turned into an evil stepmother. Mm-hmm. Uh, still, after six weeks of an increasingly public quarrel, George expels them uh, from court, just as his own father had done to him. Though doesn't keep the child, at least. Yeah. Well, so there is gradual improvement generation <laughs> on generation. Yes. <laughs> Caroline's not in the best of health at this time. She suffered from gout, so is no longer able to join George on his long walks. Sometimes has to be wheeled around in a wheelchair around court. Mm. And as such, she grew significantly overweight. Lucy Worsley described her as becoming decidedly overripe, a meaty mountain of a woman. <laughs> I do like her. Uh, Lucy Worsley, that is. So she's just turned bitter. They don't know love, uh, like parental love themselves and don't know how to give it. Uh, in November, a few weeks after Frederick's exile, Caroline's taken seriously ill. Uh, the cause of the illness was initially a mystery to doctors until George reveals to them, despite her entreaties not to, that after the birth of their last child 13 years ago, Caroline had suffered an umbilical hernia. Oh, what is that? I, so mean, I know what those It's sort of basically are, where the sort of intestines start to poke out of the stomach where it's been weakened by multiple pregnancies and you know, weight gain etc oh I see right and Caroline had been humiliated by this so she swore George to secrecy and rather than seeking treatment had in- chosen instead to mask her condition by wearing loose addresses mm. now however a loop of her bowel has squeezed out and become trapped causing a blockage in her digestive system and uh, it's, it's not a good year for surgery no. Um, so the doctors now understand the problem, but weren't 100% sure what exactly to do about it. They might have had success by uh, pushing the bowel back into the stomach and basically just sewing her up again. Uh, but instead, yeah. they decided to remove the now mortifying flesh. Um, so without any anaesthetic, they literally just start cutting away at her bowels. Caroline bears this with remarkable stoicism, even some good humour but in practical terms it really achieves nothing other than causing her excessive pain and ultimately she is clearly dying 
I'm supposed to die from the shock. Well, yeah. Uh, She has a final audience with Walpole, says goodbye to her children. Frederick is refused entry, though Walpole was sent to him with a message of forgiveness. Oh, dear. Forgiveness. (laughs) Like, uh, yes, I'm just going to make sure he resents me for eternity. There we go. (laughs) Lovely. Well, it's one of those tricky things as well. He's kind of got spies in there and he's trying to find out what's going on all sorts of things you know they're, they're all gone now in terms of this sort of thing so at least it's you know at least it's something yeah it's just i think they just need a peace mm. really. no for george she takes off the ruby ring he had given her at uh, their coronation and gives it back to him saying this is the last thing i have to give to you naked i came to you and naked i go from you Which i'm not sure it's quite true in either case but i guess no. the ring is symbolic in that sense rather than right she urges him to remarry, but he tearfully refuses, saying, No, I shall take mistresses. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's annoying, because I really don't like him. <laughs> and finally, on the 20th of December, she passes away with George holding her hand at the age of 54. Uh, and George is devastated by her death. Walpole finds him uh, with a flood of tears gushing from his royal eyes, uh, while his daughters ordered all the queens to be removed from his pack of cards because the sight of them put him into so great a disorder. And he never lost at cards again. <laughs> uh, and then one day he uh, he borrows a portrait of her from a courtier, spends a couple of hours staring at it in his bedroom, and then emerges somewhat more at peace uh, and declares, Take this picture away. I never yet saw the woman worthy to buckle her shoe. That's nice. Mm. And That's for her really funeral, he took himself to therapy for a couple yeah. of hours. And, mm. uh, and for her funeral, he ordered that one side of her coffin be removed, so that when he died, they could be adjoining, and will be together in death. So that is the life and consortship of Caroline of Ansbach. We'll review her after a quick break. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Battleliness! So, although never involved in military affairs, there are occasions when Caroline demonstrates some physical courage. Not only does she bear the horrific treatment of her doctors at the end there with mm. remarkable stoicism, she also showed strength in protecting others. Henrietta Howard, her husband's long-term mistress and her lady-in-waiting, uh, they obviously have a bit of a, a tense relationship, given the mm. nature of all of that. But Caroline does prove her protector on one occasion when Henrietta's violent husband was uh, attempting to force her to return to his household. And on one occasion, he actually tries to storm into the Queen's apartments to do exactly that, only for Caroline to literally stand her ground and refuse to let him in. God, what a bold chap. Isn't, hasn't, have, aren't there soldiers on the... There should be, really, she think. <laughs> yeah. Weird. She later admitted okay. that she had been horribly afraid, knowing him to be brutal as well as a little mad and seldom quite sober, and thought him capable of throwing her out of a window. Yeah, he'd have to be, I think. We're looking for agency uh, in this a lot of the time for consorts, and despite her difficult start in life, it is impressive the way that Caroline does seem to take control of her own destiny... Uh, this is first demonstrated when the future Holy Roman Emperor proposes marriage to her on condition that she convert to Catholicism. And such a request would have been, wouldn't have been would have been surprising that she can convert, nor unusual 
that's quite common within the Holy Roman Empire. You've got lots of these states with different religious outlooks. But when a Jesuit priest is sent to correct her religious outlook, Caroline doesn't just take instruction, but instead debates articles of faith with the priest, and they have lengthy uh, discussions in front of an open Bible. Mm. She perhaps doesn't get the better of the priest, so the Electress Sophia uh, recorded that the Jesuit who has studied more argues her down, and then the princess weeps. But nevertheless, she stands her ground, and ultimately she refuses what many consider to be the marital jackpot. Yeah. But yeah, so she refuses this uh, marriage, and under serious pressure from her guardian, King Frederick of Prussia, without whose support, of course, she never could have hoped to have received anything like such an impressive offer in the first place. And he'd written to her on receipt of the proposal, I do not very well see how your highness can decline such an offer. (laughs) Yeah, you're mental. (laughs) What are you talking about? In Britain, she holds genuine political power, mostly due to her alliance with Robert Walpole. George II had actually planned to replace Walpole when he became king, um, having dubbed him a rogue and rascal. And for a few Mm. days, the Spencer Compton, the speaker, was effectively seen as prime minister. But Caroline recognises Walpole's talent, and with her encouragement, the decision was soon overruled, and Walpole retains power. It's so blurry, isn't it, this time, where Mm. power lies? Yeah. So it's, again, a thing that even though the the politicians are now you know, increasingly the ones who have the, I guess, real executive power. But court politics does still matter at this point. Yeah, he's still chairman of the board. Yeah. Uh, And together, Caroline Walpole developed a very uh, effective system of effectively managing George. (laughs) So his ego is such that he hates the idea of being influenced by anyone. So they have to pretend. So first of all, they discuss and agree, you know, certain policies and things they want to do. And then Caroline will discuss it with George first, sort of priming him ahead of meeting Walpole so that George will feel like he's already had the idea before Walpole comes to it with him. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Or alternatively, if uh, George hears it from Walpole first and disagrees with him, Caroline will feign to agree with George, but then work her magic and persuade George that actually it was his idea anyway and a very good one at that. Hmm. So as Walpole confided later, she can make him propose the very thing as his own opinion, which a week before he had rejected as mine. <laughs> so he's play- they're playing him like a fiddle. <laughs> and indeed, a contemporary rhyme teased. You may strut, Dapper George, but twill all be in vain. We know tis Queen Caroline that reign. Oh, right. This is really good battleiness, then. Mm. And it's not just soft power. As you said, she, uh, George appoints Caroline as regent four times when he goes off to Hanover and states that policy decisions were entrusted entirely to the Queen with the advice of the Lords of the Council. So she does have full executive power, which is probably, to be frank, more than Mary II had under William III, as in William yeah, and Mary. together. And she um, was meant to be co-monarch. Yeah, and actually, so it puts into context the times when Walpole is trying to tempt him back because he's with a mistress on the continent. Mm. Um, and actually, look, dude, it's just really annoying. We've got it all covered over here. It's like it's all running look, smoothly. You just got to put up with this because, yeah, you know, yeah, this is um, this is otherwise totally fine. Yeah. And I was trying to, th- I was trying to think. I haven't looked into this in detail, but I'm sort of thinking that she's the f- possibly the first. Queen consort regent since Catherine Parr. Well, our Rex team will know, won't they? Yeah, someone will message in if that's wrong. But still, it's you know, we, it's not that common for us to have mm. consort as regent. Even though you always say that was born Book of King and Queens, so that's how you imagine it. But it isn't actually that mm. common. But Caroline is properly regent. 
Yeah. Indeed, many historians have argued Caroline's one of the country's most powerful and influential consorts. And it's impressive because her power and influence doesn't come from extraordinary circumstances like we often see, which provoke her, you know, into rebelling against her husband, taking a lead during a civil war or minority yeah. rule for a son. These are the traditionally untraditional ways that consorts and female power comes along. But in her case, she's operating within the traditional confines of a consort. Yeah. It's just, it's just, they've, split the they're they're married they've got to rule the country she's better at it so she does it (laughs) she's better at it but he doesn't realize this but she's found a way that she can do it without him realizing yeah however some historians have sort of more recent years argued that her influence has been overstated and indeed that it was deliberately overstated by contemporaries so a lot of the evidence, quite colourful source, comes from Lord Harvey, who was her vice-chamberlain and had something of a bias against George. And also Walpole himself talks up her own importance, but perhaps there's an extent to which he's sort of doing that to give a sense to everybody else of how important he is. So he's like, oh, well, I'm the chief minister, but of course we all know that the Queen is the one who manages everything, but it's fine, I'm very close to the Queen, so obviously... Right. But he clearly considered himself in charge. So he would flatter Caroline. So he'd say to her, Madam, I can do nothing without you. Whatever my industry and watchfulness for your interest and welfare suggest, it is you must execute. You, madam, are the sole mover of this court. But then when he talks to other people, should I tell either the king or queen what I propose to bring them to six months hence, I could never succeed. Step by step, I can carry them. But if ever I show them at a distance to what end that road leads, they stop short, and all my designs are always defeated. That's totally... That Oh my God, that sounds like how me. The <laughs> That's exactly what I'm trying to do. All right, let's get people this far with this end goal. Mm. But also, some historians point out that actually this is also underplaying George's actual power, because, you know, his government doesn't crumble after Caroline's death, or indeed when Walpole eventually falls from power. And it's quite hard to identify a moment where either of them managed to force him to really do something he doesn't want to do. Yeah. So probably he's actually just not really that interested in domestic policy. He's interested in military affairs and foreign, particularly Germanic policy that they, mm. we, historians aren't so interested in. So it looks like yeah. he doesn't have any power because the bits that we're interested in, he's not so involved in. But actually, you know. He still sees power as... The closer you are to the battlefield, the more power you have rather than what yeah. policies you're putting through. Yeah. But, you know, as we said, delegate, he did. And she is regent yeah. four times with executive power. So we probably shouldn't swing too far the other way. You know, we're, we're in the transition period between Henry Mark V battliness and yeah. <laughs> uh i don't know george v's battliness basically you know when 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 power transfers to parliament hmm. and she is displaying the battliness of a monarch a male monarch in the future <laughs> yeah. uh, and he's just doing all of the old-fashioned battliness stuff that we yeah. would have marked the other four indeed he is the last uh he is the last king uh for us who does go lead his troops in battle no. Well, there you go. At some point, let's let's make that flip. And I think that's I think we've absolutely now. So, in a funny way, I think it's really good still, even mm. if um, even if it's been over exaggerated. Mm. She's having to perform the role in a way that is a good example to f- future monarchs. One more thing, I suppose, against her. I suppose a cost to her influence. She is able to achieve her power because she's completely dedicated to George. 
and mm. in retaining a hold over him. And at times mm. you might say it looks a little bit sort of almost subservient, you know, having to smile along to the detailed description of all his dalliances with other women, most painfully, of course, having to swallow her pride and actually invite Amelie von Walmode into Britain for fear that otherwise she'll lose his affection. Uh, Harvey paints a picture of this highly cultured and intellectual woman hemmed in by her oafish husband. And, you know, she'd have loved to have established an intellectual salon in London to rival that that she'd enjoyed in Berlin, but apparently she didn't dare pursue it for fear of the king, who often rebuked her for dabbling in all that learned nonsense, as he called it. I mean, but she is choosing her battles. Yeah. The restrictions, like, to have this power, you have to listen to this pompous oaf go on about how nasty... Yeah, uh, or, or the things that he he finds interesting. Yes, it's not um, pleasant for Caroline, but the scope for female power has ever been limited, and she's found a way. And it's not great sometimes, mm. but she knows how to keep that power. Picks the battles and wins them, and that's even forgetting the turning down the Holy Roman Emperor thing <laughs> when she was previously just like a, a princess of Rutland, basically. I ate. We're looking for agency, yeah, and I think we've got it. I think we've got soft power that brings some hard power. Mm. <laughs> really, I think I'll go for that as well. Nice. Although I don't like her at all. Anyway, that is a good start for Caroline. 16 for battliness. Scandal. Well, unfortunately, as we've discussed, Caroline was completely devoted to George, so absolutely not the sort to be associated with any form of scandal. I mean, it's all his scandal, isn't it? Well, yeah, and so during the fallout from the baptism debacle with George I, apparently he did try to uh, sully her name by spreading rumours of infidelity against Caroline, but a family member noted, he will get laughed at by everybody for doing this, for the princess has a spotless reputation. Mm. Subjectivity. Oh, a zero for yeah, scandal. Zero, yeah, zero, yeah. Subjectivity. When given the opportunity to exercise power as regent, Caroline proves herself very able. Portugal places an embargo on a British ship with tensions threatening to escalate, but she manages to persuade the ambassador to release the ship uh, and make sure that things don't get out of hand. What's the Portuguese doing? Why are they? The River Tagus, I think it was. But yeah, well, I can't, I'm not sure what the tension was. There was obviously some kind of dispute. Right. During her 1732 regency, she was shocked to learn about the poor condition of prisons, uh, and despite Walpole's resistance, launches an inquiry into systematic abuses, which leads to more vigorous inspections of prisons. That's good. Oh, wow. Uh, Whenever it's within her power, she erred on the side of clemency, so she always resisted signing death warrants, uh, intervened (laughs) to mitigate penalties for debtors and other minor offences, tried to have prisoners released early when it was appropriate. Mm. Uh, And she also commissioned a report on a Parisian orphanage. And though ultimately this all occurs after uh, her death, the report that she commissioned was very important in helping to shape Thomas Coram's foundling hospital. Which is sort of very famous. um, Well, the foundling hospital, the face got a famous sort of early orphanage and charitable institution. I think possibly the first charitable institution in the country or something like that. Now, we're coming back to something that you put a pin in earlier. Her most significant contribution to improving the life of her subjects was around the smallpox vaccine. Mm. Oh, it was then. Mm. So the aristocratic traveller, Larry, 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 <laughs> Larry Lady Mary Montague, <laughs> Lady Mary Montague told Caroline of how the Turks had rendered the disease harmless by engrafting the disease and argue for this sort of process of inoculation to be adopted in England. As you said, Jenna, all the stuff with cows and that mm. sort of thing. And so defying the advice of British doctors and clergymen, Caroline begs for the life of six condemned prisoners at Newgate to be spared on condition that they'll have a go at this inoculation. 
as an experiment. Oh gosh, I mean it, that sounds like Joseph Engels trying to <laughs> begging Hitler for some people before he kills them. I mean, sort of clemency, isn't it? But but on the other hand, it works. The greater good. The greater good. And once it's established that it works, she does then inoculate her own children. Oh, yes, I knew that. That's mm. her. That's yeah. her. Wow. wow. That's mm. like that um, home secretary giving his kid a bit of beef burger. Yeah. <laughs> wow. She's really into science then. She backs it. Yeah, so Voltaire celebrates her as a delightful philosopher on the throne, claiming that a great part of the kingdom followed her example, and since that time 10,000 children at least of persons of condition owe in this manner their lives to Her Majesty. Well, that's a strong argument for subjectivity, isn't it? Mm. Caroline is celebrated as a cultural and intellectual patron across uh, various arts. Her great love was gardening, so she commissioned oh. extensive new gardens in Kensington and Richmond in the more natural style. Um. So she put it in helping nature, not losing it in art. Oh, I mean, this is a this is a push for my affections towards the end here, isn't it? She also commissions at Kensington the Serpentine. Oh yeah. So she creates the seventh. So the lake, the Serpentine Lake in London, that you may well see when you go into the gardens. That's that's her. Nice. I've uh, there's a there's a very nice cafe just there. I want some. I was very, very feeling very delicate in there once with my my friend Mark, and I placed my order, um, <laughs> and then the the um, the brister I sort of was a bit lost and didn't really know what to do, and the brister um, sort of came round and sort of moved me to one side <laughs> so that other people could place their order. <laughs> it sort of shook me back into my um, very gentle. <laughs> And presumably there's another story which involves just this 10 minutes of waving and talking and <laughs> shouting. I In the end, I just had that. to get out and move him. Yeah, yeah. Well, guess from her point of view, yeah. It, was, it would have been that. Caroline is widely read and she founds a library at St. James's Palace that houses something like 3,000 books. And she mm. follows Leibniz's universal model, because he's a librarian in Hanover as well as his other jobs. Um, so she's got a wide variety of subjects and in different languages. This is really strong. Mm. And that stimulates the addition of royal libraries that's fully realised by her grandson, George III. She's also a noted collector of royal imagery, which helps to sort of project dynastic continuity of the Hanoverians. Again, her project to be, you know, fully English and embrace all of that. Uh, but her most significant artistic contribution is accidental. She went on a rummage and happened across some sketches that had been missing since Whitehall Palace was destroyed by fire in 1698. And they transpired to be a few sketches by Leonardo da Vinci, and in a big collection of drawings by Hans Holbein, in which there were 63 sketches of Henry VIII, his wives and his courtiers. So, whilst George resists all things intellectual, Caroline positively embraces them. So Lucy Worsley has even stated that Caroline was the cleverest queen consort ever to sit upon the throne of England. Yeah, it sounds that way. I mean, I can see why Lucy Worsley's getting quoted. She likes her. Mm. Yes, and, um, <laughs> uh, and it's her period. Yeah, I mean, I, I can now see it all. Um, mm sort of walking around Kensington uh, the serpentine Lucy Worsley in the background commentating <laughs> on it dressed as Caroline yeah 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 she maintains her friendship with uh, the philosopher Leibniz from afar but she also does, delights in becoming acquainted with the aged Isaac Newton he's still kicking about brilliant. yeah tells friends that she was honoured to have lived in the age of such a man yeah wow 
But it is a delicate balancing act because Leibniz and Newton are actually in some dispute over the discovery of calculus and an accusation of plagiarism <laughs> against Leibniz. Right. But Caroline being in the middle actually proves very productive. So when Leibniz wrote to her that he thought Newtonian physics was detrimental to natural theology and responsible for a lack of religiosity in England, uh, Caroline helped to instigate a correspondence between Leibniz and an acolyte of Newton's, Dr Samuel Clarke. And this correspondence continues for a couple of years under her auspices until Leibniz's death, covers a whole host of topics, philosophy, science, maths, religion, that Clarke then publishes. It's the Leibniz... Clark correspondence and was a very popular and fascinating work. Wow. And she sort of was the spark. Yeah. Hmm. So an awful lot of good things in subjectivity, but she's not without her flaws. So one historian described her as being a difficult, clever, restless woman. And some felt queenship brought out sort of the worst of her sometimes haughty nature. She disliked the government's leader in the House of Lords, Viscount Townsend. Apparently he once suggested her regency powers should be curtailed. And she said he ever strove to put on a mask which is no better than an ass's face. <laughs> she's protecting her position there, though. Oh, I mean, yeah. It's, yeah, not, yeah. it's um, really <clears throat> hard what she's balancing. Hmm. And someone who comes along and tries to tip that balance... They're going to get short shrift. In 1730, when Walpole and Townsend, they were getting on quite well, so she tried to show her sort of dominance over the two by revealing to each individually that they'd both told her a secret that they'd promised each other they would keep. When they find out about this, apparently they ended up having quite a violent altercation and Townsend ended up retiring from government. He wasn't her ally. No. She's brilliant. She gets a lot of uh, the sort of the poets and playwrights of the day. She deliberately courts them so they will favour her, but not everybody was won over. Jonathan Swift, author of Gulliver's oh, yeah. Travels, was not an admirer. He wrote mockingly of her as one who was so self-important she forgot commitments made to former friends. Because that, that whole book is a, is a um, satire, isn't it? Yes, but that's sort of, that was done in the reign of George I, so she quite enjoyed Gulliver's Travels oh, and right. praised him for it, but he then apparently was expecting some rewards that he didn't get. Poet laureate or something, or book writer-in-chief yeah. of the stool. Her pride is a common theme amongst critics, so Alexander Pope characterised her in his work The Dunciad as having lumbering intellectual pretensions, encouraging bad poetry and bringing chaos and darkness to the land. And it must be said that in the 1730s, when she has quite a lot of her sort of regency power, her popularity does seem to wane. She's associated with unpopular policies, uh, the excise bill, which puts tax on tobacco and alcohol, the gin bill, which is obviously aiming to stop people drinking so much gin. Yeah, but that was th these are all unpopular but necessary <laughs> things, That's right? <laughs> but it does lead to such discontent that the excise bill in particular, that she and Walpole were burnt in effigy at Charing Cross. Mm. Would you like to be a subject, I suppose? Or, or actually, mm. but she's more of a parent, isn't she? I don't want <laughs> yeah. to do this. Don't, don't want to stop drinking gin. Well, and perhaps maybe as a parent, that's another area we might look at and say that it really gets so bad that you might put this down as bad subjectivity. The really most serious and shocking recipient of her ire was her own son, Prince mm. Frederick. She and George seemed to completely forgotten everything they went through when they were the out-of-favour heirs under George I. Let history repeat itself. So Janice Hadlow observed that they treated Frederick with a venom that exceeded any legitimate political frustration and conceived a hatred for him that became almost pathological in its intensity. So she tried to control him with an informant mistress, then becomes obsessed with the idea that basically because she doesn't want him to be king and she certainly doesn't want him to continue the dynasty. So she became obsessed mm. with the idea that he must be impotent to the extent that she believed that the pregnancy couldn't be real and he would just get a changeling. 
hence chasing his wife across London going into labour. Uh, when Frederick lobbied Parliament for greater personal allowance, Caroline declared that he was the greatest ass, the greatest liar, and the greatest mongrel, and the greatest beast in the whole world. I heartily wish he was out of it. What happened? <laughs> and on the day of a vote around his personal allowance, even Harvey, who often encouraged her against Frederick, was shocked by her anger when she was watched him walking across the courtyard, and she sort of reddens with anger and then says, Look, there he goes. That wretch. That villain. I wish the ground would open this moment and sink that monster to the lowest reaches of hell. I assure you that if my wishes and prayers had any effect, his days would not be very happy or long. Wow. Everything all right, Mum? Because <laughs> if it wasn't for that, I'd really like her. It seems like all her neuroses and tensions, it just gets channeled here. Yeah. I think that is exactly what's happening, because he's a, a male that, that she can actually say what she feels to. And he does do some nasty stuff to her. Like, he does sort of deliberately target her during the regencies, which he thinks should be his regencies. So she does bear the brunt of it. There's a rumour when George II's coming back from Hanover on one occasion that his ship has sunk and he might be dead. So Frederick hosts a grand ball. It does escalate. The hate comes back yeah, and they just it escalates at some point. Yeah. But... I guess there's a question mark, isn't there, in terms of subjectivity? Like, does that matter so much? No, oh, no. Really? I actually don't think so. Yeah. Because it's about the subject. Would you want to be a subject? Mm. I suppose it pushes. You know, it's not good to have such an open conflict between king and heir. How strict are we going to be here? But would you want to be the subject? Because you don't want a gin tax. That's a good way of thinking about it. But How far do they advance the lives? But yeah, how much they advance the lives, how much they do good things yeah. for you. And I think with that, you know, you look at the the smallpox vaccine. Smallpox alone? Yeah. <laughs> it's her attitude a lot as well, actually. Just Prisons, her, uh, the orphanage, all this sort of yeah. stuff. But her openness to science as opposed to getting all worked up about... She's putting all the effort that a previous generations would have put towards religion, towards mm. uh, science. Yeah. In spite of but, George being so anti and, you know, also worth remembering that this is a new dynasty on the throne, which is very, very low down the actual order of succession in terms of just pure primogeniture. Yeah. George I, very unpopular. George II basically just turns turns into his dad when he becomes king. <laughs> so, you know, Caroline's real sort of espousal of all things English, association with Elizabeth, all that sort of stuff, actually, it's, you know, maybe quite important for helping to help establish oh, I think the it dynasty. Is. I think it's brilliant. I can't think of anything that... Well, maybe the smallpox thing's enough. I can't think of anything that would make it a, a certainly a perfect score or even maybe a nine, but an eight. Hmm. I might even go up to... I'm wondering about even an eight and a half, maybe. I might go eight and a half. Right. I do think it's fair. I just think it's a lot... That's a, a big old list of yeah. good stuff. It is but really albeit stuff. with a bit of weirdness coming out against Frederick. Yeah, and that's, that's colouring my view, I think. Hmm. Um, when I think it shouldn't in this... It, that should colour my opinion of her rather than this subject but, you know, score. But I guess, I, but, you know, her personality and likability, I feel like that could come under subjectivity. Mm. It's valid. Anyway, an eight and an eight and a half, that's 16 and a half for subjectivity. Longevity. Caroline was queen from the 11th of June 1727 to the 20th of November 1737. Hmm. So 10 years and 5 months. So 10.4, 2 years, score of 7.5, which is 35th overall. Yeah, that's that. I mean, if she had a long reign in there as well, 
Should be really good. Dynasty, not the program. Caroline and George have seven surviving children when she dies. Wow. So that gives her a score of 16.5 again, which is joint sixth overall in the series. It's very good. So overall, that gives her a score of 56.5, which puts her in equal 12th with Matilda of Scotland, first wife of Henry I. Which, which one? Matilda of Scotland. So she was the Saxon princess, but well, daughter of the King of Scots, but Saxon, so uh, niece of Edgar the Etheling, married Henry I, and that joined the Saxon and Norman royal line together. Good. Well, I'm impressed. But... It's not all about the score. Does she have that certain something, that lasting legacy, the great achievement and star quality that we call... Rex Factor! Can I give you my gut? Uh, for, <laughs> oh, poor Caroline. <laughs> oh, don't. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> no, star quality is the thing I'm struggling with. Hmm. But I feel like... I want to say yes, because she actually did all the work to take it over the line, and I just, um, it's not her fault that I don't know of her. <laughs> yeah, she's, it's one of those, she's sort of got forgotten in history, and it's the fact that yeah. she's not even the most famous Queen Caroline, probably the other, you know, say George IV's wife and that conflict, perhaps a bit more. But, you know, she's she's very influential and substantial as a consort, important ally of Britain's first prime minister, regent with full executive power, friends with Leibniz and Newton, pioneer, and encouraging smallpox inoculation. I mean, remember, she didn't come up with it, but, you know, she her example is mm. important. Yeah, yeah. Rejects the Holy Roman Emperor, Serpentine, bit of Holbein sketches popping up. You know, there's loads of stuff going on. Loads of stuff. Loads mm. and loads of stuff. That, if that were a... Uh, if we were doing a monarch who'd done that... Uh, and wasn't previously very well known. We'd be like, this This guy definitely deserves to be better known. Mm. And she's doing all that whilst being hampered at all turns because she's trying to uh, execute power that some people don't think should be hers. Mm. And indeed having to manage her husband who <laughs> doesn't want yeah. to be influenced and just really wants yeah. to do military and medals. Yeah. It's a big yes from me, I think. I think she has to me as well. I think she's really, really good. It's a, She's another, you know, subjectivity one, I think, really. Just proper doing good stuff. Yeah. So that is a yes for Caroline Avansback. She has got the Rex Factor. We Correspondence Corner. So that was Caroline Avansback. Let us know what you thought about her. You can find us on Twitter, X and Instagram, at RexFactorPod. Email rexfactorpodcast.hotmail.com. Go to rexfactorpodcast.com to get links to all our stuff. And uh, remember to send in a hashtag consult card for an episode image for Caroline. And then if you um, sign up, come and join us on Discord, which is where we hang out. (laughs) Well, come and join us on Patreon, where you can donate monthly to join the Privy Council and get access to over 200 bonus episodes at patreon.com forward slash rexfactor. You also get access to uh, the Discord forum chat and we have some new privy councillors to welcome to the fold jasper frank logan todd julie rooney maggie mcturnan sif boynton vin malbeck sarah Schatzer, mandy stratford andrea palumbo jennifer maybor katie swindon tommy lee claire brown brian blankenau bridget boucher sarah davis vga 2000 Robin Schultz, A1 Kendrum, Lorraine Harrison, Sam Christopher, Becky Sarah Simon, 
Victoria Walker, Jenny Frame and Sarah Cantarella. Welcome to the fold. Come to Discord, please. Uh, so that's all for us today. Next time, we will be reviewing the Queen Consort of George III, she now of Bridgerton fame, Charlotte of mecklenburg strelitz George III, we're there. We're going to be in the 19th century at the end of the next episode. That is absolutely bananas. See you next time. Cheerio.